Welcome to the Astronaut Philosophy Podcast. The song you just heard is from one of my favorite bands, Hiatus Coyote. It's titled Jekyll. The figures of Jekyll and Hyde remind us that the human being can be multiple things at once. And that's going to be one of the topics of the show today. My guest is Dr. Megan Craig. And Dr. Craig studied under one of my favorite philosophers, Richard Bernstein. Bernstein wrote a book called Beyond Objectivism and Relativism. And he dedicated his life to studying the effects of certainty and its inversion of relativism and how these two polarities act as a kind of mind virus in our society, in science and politics and philosophy. Dr. Craig received her PhD from the New School of Social Research under Bernstein. She's a Yale graduate. She's also an artist, which makes her an interesting person to come on for other reasons. She's been featured in multiple galleries, and she's a designer for the record label Firehouse 12 Records. She has a body of written work, which you can find on her website, uh, including the book Levinas and James, toward a pragmatic phenomenology. She's a professor at Stony Brook University where she teaches on subjects like William James, psychoanalysis, phenomenology, perception, and pragmatism. I really enjoyed the conversation I had with her and I hope you guys enjoy it as well. Thanks for listening. Okay, Dr. Craig, thank you so much for... uh coming on with me today. I really appreciate it. Um, you are a very interesting combination of things. You are a philosopher and you're into a little bit of embodied cognitive theories and uh, some interesting things like synesthesia, which is something I've talked about on the podcast before. Um, but you're also an artist and that's kind of what you're doing right now. I wonder maybe if we could kind of start uh, and and talk about how you try to bring these things together like art and philosophy and how they how they vibe for you sure um well thanks for having me um yeah so i mean i have always kind of studied philosophy and art at the same time since i was an undergraduate at yale university i majored in philosophy and i essentially minored in art. Um, So I think for me personally, they've always just been different ways of expression and forms of thinking that very naturally live together. Um, But I would say that professionally, you know, they occupy pretty different worlds, the academic philosophy world and the art world have some points of intersection and interesting overlap, but on the whole, um, I think I found 
Well, two things. One, there tends to be a lot of suspicion of anyone who tries to do more than one thing professionally, uh, because the attitude from both sides of that equation is that you really should be spending all your time doing the one thing. Um, so that can be tricky. However, I happen to teach in this program at Stony Brook University um, that is a terminal master's degree in philosophy and art. So that's been a really amazing kind of combination of these two things where we do focus on aesthetic theory and kind of classical aesthetics, but there is also a real stress on practice and contemporary art and a whole kind of world of issues where things are a lot more blurry and complicated. Um, so I would say in the recent, like, let's say last decade or so, I've really tried to let the boundaries between my own professional existence as an artist and a philosopher become a lot more porous and not make any real hard, fast distinctions between these two things, but just kind of think about like, what project am I involved in and what medium or media does it call for? And so sometimes that's a scholarly article or, you know, working on something that's just strictly in written form, but sometimes now that's dance or music or paint or whatever else it happens to be. That's really, I forgot to mention this, uh, you know, when we had our little discussion earlier, but part of what I've been putting out on the podcast is music also. And so like I can, I can relate to that dilemma of having a lot of things that you're trying to get out and then struggling, like what is the, what is the pro appropriate place to put those things? Um, and the feeling that you may be stretching yourself. There is a little bit of the bias that you should just be siloed. You need to put all your energy in one place and that's going to lead to the, the greatest accomplishment. Um, and then on the other hand, it, there's a deep hesitation to make amputations, you know, to yourself and to your, your time. Um, because you feel there's some intrinsic value, even though if it's not in a value that you can immediately uh, put a put a dollar sign on. But um, but you've seemed to have, you know, I'm an amateur in both of those things and both philosophy and uh, art. But you seem to be doing really well, and that's what you're doing right now. If I'm not mistaken, right, you're working on art uh, and professionally for this semester, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think um, there's always a lot of tension in anybody's existence, but um, I, you know, I think you have to make the work that feels like it's um, real and true to you. And I think there are a lot of ways in which, you know, any professional track that you choose is going to try to pin you into place or put you into a kind of neat buttonhole of what it is that you're doing. So as soon as you are actively engaged in creative pursuits, creative intellectual pursuits, I think you're going to face that problem of, you know, wanting to, on the one hand, fit in and succeed, whatever that happens to mean. And on the other hand, to be true to 
your work and yourself and what it is you think you're doing, which might be the creation of some, you know, mold or category that doesn't really exist yet. Um, so, you know, for me, I think that that just involves kind of the acceptance of a fair amount of discomfort in the process. Um, and also letting go of the, some of the traditional kind of markers of success or, you know, um, popularity or, you know, any of these things that are kind of part of the feedback loop that tells you supposedly how well or not well that you're doing. Um, yeah, so I would say, I mean, I'm, I just think I'm in a place now where I really do think of my own um, professional work as not landing neatly in either philosophy or in the art world. I just have multiple ways of thinking and trying to work out ideas. And I draw from a lot of different places and a lot of different kinds of collaborations in order to, um, in order to move that work forward. That's really, um, that's really great that you've been able to establish yourself uh, professionally in that way. Um, I think one of the difficulties pr creative people have uh, and we'll always have, especially in the in this point of time where we are now, and this is going to relate to our epistemology later, um, is institutions select for things that creative people uh, don't have in spades. Um, the institutions tend to select for your ability to obey and conform to a set of rules and to carry out work uh, within very specific expectations. And creative people tend to see things, uh, they tend to move between sets of rules and see things um, outside of that. Um, and that is very hard to get your foot in the door unless you are a genius. Um, <laughs> it, it's very hard because the feedback loop, on the one hand, we do want to not be caught in, in the feedback in the feedback loop as, as somehow reflecting our true value as human beings. Right. But on the other hand, the feedback loop is important because you have to have it to survive, right? You have to have someone agreeing that you are doing something of value so that you can eat and have shelter and have relationships. Right. Uh, so if the feedback loop is broken, um, for creative people, it's, it's hard to tell where is it, where is it that the feedback is broken and where am I broken? Uh, and then that's kind of your life process is to figure out, well, what's wrong with me or what's wrong with the system and and how can I contribute to it in a meaningful way? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think institutions like replication mm -hmm. and predictability. Um, I have been just exceptionally lucky in a lot of ways and you know, early on, my real ambition was to be an artist. Like that was my, you know, like my early childhood. If you asked me, what are you going to do when you grow up? Um, or that kind of sense of romance and love of some set of things. However, I think along the way, I discovered philosophy felt like real work to me. And I had a kind of template of teaching in my family. My parents were both teachers in public schools and my grandmother was a kindergarten teacher. So there's a sort of, you know, 
a sense that like, that's a viable job. That's something I could do. And I think at a certain point, I just thought, well, I'm going to have to support myself as an artist. And it's very unlikely that I can support myself making art. And so I will support myself by teaching. Mm. Um, which in retrospect is a totally absurd thing to think that you're going to like get a PhD in philosophy as a practical endeavor to support yourself. Um, and, you know, I have a lot of very honest conversations with students of my own now about those very issues. Like, you know, what what are you paying for your education? What do you actually expect the outcome to be? Can you afford to be in this situation? Um, I don't think there's enough discussion in higher education about those trade-offs and about what it really means to take on debt and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. But like I said, I was exceptionally lucky. I had funding for graduate school. I, you know, I had this plan in my mind. I'm going to keep making my artwork, but I'm going to have a steady paying job through teaching. And, you know, largely that worked out, but that was like the stars aligned uh, right. at the end of my PhD that this job opened at Stony Brook that was basically looking for somebody doing philosophy and art. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of work involved and a lot of like uh, intention on my part involved, but I really think, you know, I also, I just had like a lot of very, very good luck at that critical, critical juncture where normally you are kind of forced into having to make a choice. Right. Well, I think that gives people some hope. I mean, I, I know, I know two people right now. Uh, one guy who went, he's got a PhD from Princeton uh, in music and he, um, he might be listening to this and he's published and uh, he is a hell of an artist and he's in, interested in the occult and the relationship of sort of hidden reality and music. He has a very well done podcast, but uh, you know, he's bagging groceries and um, you know, he's very struggling to, to earn an income from, his contributions because, you know, the society doesn't recognize his contributions. And, um, and I have another friend who I mentioned earlier, who, uh, has an Oxford, uh, PhD and masters in theology and is in kind of a, I think he, he is, uh, he's done some work as a professor, but he struggles on the other end with his music, uh, and trying to find a place of where he, where he can fit that in. And so it's like, a, it's very cool that you found a, a nice little balance. Um, I think that's uh, that gives us hope uh, that you know maybe <laughs> maybe there's a spot you know that people can find. Um, well, I think the other thing is, um, I don't know. It's something I talk about with my graduate students uh, who are going on a job market that's really tight. It's really tough. There are fewer and fewer tenure track jobs, so you know a lot of instability in. Um, in higher education. But I think, you know, we do a disservice to people who are coming through these systems when we don't talk about the like really kind of wide open, surprising ways in which people can make a living or can use skills that they have or find employment. You know, sometimes you have to actually protect your creative work and not have that be a part of how you're thinking about your 
financial existence because it needs incubation, it needs time, it needs space, and it's not gonna it's not gonna be a kind of easy return. And that's at any. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. That's um, that's such a hard point to judge from within yourself. That's all I was gonna say there because it's um, you don't know if you are truly talented or if you're a narcissist because the talented person and the narcissist are going to say the same thing that they're justified in taking their course eternally justified and one turns out to be right and to really have something special and the other turns out to be tragically wrong but it's only after the years go by that you're able to see and that's kind of the inescapable utility of faith i guess i mean it's good to have faith and you need faith but it's it's there's no yeah. getting around faith, I guess, in a sense. Well, and it's a tightrope, you know, And but I think that this is also really important for anybody making work in the world. It, you know, the, the kind of tightrope between uh, confidence in what it is that you're doing and then being subject to critique and subject to a public. So, you know, there are, you, you could be Henry Darger and like, be completely separate from any public forever and hope that somebody discovers all your work after you're dead and you're going to be deemed some exceptional person. That seems like a bad idea for a lot of reasons. So you have to be able to negotiate critique and the kind of stepping out into different kinds of publics and also not be totally ruined by those different moments because you know some of them will be devastating some of them will be like that kind of 15 seconds of fame kind of moment there's a lot of ups and downs um so i think you know anybody trying to put their own work out into the world has to be both kind of centered in a sense that uh you are your own best critic but also open to the fact that you're engaged in a dialogue, you're in the world, you're, you are, you know, putting forth things that have audiences or have um, these interactive modes, whether you want that or not, and being able to listen to that, being able to take some of the hard messages from that, from those different experiences. Yeah, the 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 audience is kind of, implicate in the in the act of creating the art. Absolutely. Um there's two things of for our conversation that we're going to have that we're already kind of hinting at. And the one is agreement. The the value of agreement. Um and which kind of plays into uh, pragmatism and, and pragmatic uh uh notions of truth. Um and the other, though, if we kind of touched on a little bit, uh, is institutions and kind of the 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 moment we're in in history. Um, institutions value rules, and they value very specific ways of doing things. And part of this, the 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 structure of bureaucracy and the sort of omnipotence of it in our society, seems to me to originate in the idea that we can that reality obeys to certain rules that we formulate 
uh, in our models. And, and in that, it's a temptation to not use the word model, that reality obeys us almost, um, and that we can govern society in that way so that truth, absolute truth, can be formulated in rules, um, and just like nature, so that we govern society through lots of, you know, bureaucratic institutions and lots of rules and regulations within those. And in an institution with employees, like a corporate situation, a very similar thing happens where you sort of regulate your way into the perfect, perfect functioning. The longer an institution has been in a place, the more rules that they will have. There's this, what, I guess what I'm getting at is there is a, we have a, an idea about truth and rules that, that rules somehow capture something ultimate and impenetrable and that we must stick to the rules because the rules are protect us from all things and the rules are infallible or we treat them as such that that's how institutions seem to operate. Um, but you've done a lot of work uh, related to this about truth and, and rules and what's objective and what's relative and you're you've written uh or edited a book by someone i, I very much like his name's bernstein and he's written a, a book called objectivism and relativism um, beyond objectivism beyond, and relativism. yes beyond objectivism and relative which is like the cool part of the book um yeah maybe maybe you could start picking apart some of the stuff i've i've thrown out and, or maybe start wherever you want and maybe talk about bernstein yeah, well, so Dick Bernstein was um, my teacher at the New School for Social Research. And wow, I did not know that. So you, oh, you were his student. Yes, he was my dissertation advisor. What? <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Um, so I met him um, when I started there. And, uh, you know, ha he was my really my primary mentor philosophically. Um, he just passed away this last July. And um, so I have co-edited a book about his work and I'm just at the tail end of co-editing a um, edition of Dewey Studies that is all former students and colleagues of his writing about him and his work. Um, so he's a really, I mean, he is such a special person to me personally, but also, you know, philosophically, he's such a an, an important figure in um, in our own philosophical time, and especially in thinking about the links between early pragmatists and right now. So I have a lot to say about him. Um, but yeah, his book uh, Beyond Objectivism and Relativism, I think really grew out of an attempt to diagnose a contemporary crisis, which essentially he describes as um, a kind of crisis of consciousness that's happening um, around ideas relating to rationality. And in his own descriptions of this, he always takes us back to what he calls Cartesian anxiety and this sort of historical story about a kind of anxiety that emanates 
out of Descartes in the 17th century and then gets sort of played out in an enlightenment faith in reason in the 18th century and uh, that kind of flows into 19th century and then this kind of 20th century um, uh, schism or you know radical crisis around ideas related to rationality and rule following that is sort of epitomized by some of the issues raised by the Second World War. So mm-hmm. to say that differently, um, the kind of conceit of Descartes' meditations is that uh, without a single sure point of certainty, some like total foundationalist um, certainty, you can't know anything. And so that, of course, leads Descartes to this thought experiment of trying to systematically destroy every belief that he has that could possibly be destroyed and leads him into this um, radical skepticism or radical doubt. So I think Bernstein kind of identifies that Cartesian move with what he calls Cartesian anxiety, which he takes to be a very modern and pervasive phenomenon. And essentially the the Cartesian anxiety is this very pernicious either or, which is like either there's something totally certain, some foundational truth that I can base everything on, or there's no certainty and we're just stuck with this horrific kind of relativism, radical skepticism or nihilism. Power struggle. Yeah. And so, you know, I think his efforts in Beyond Objectivism and Relativism are to try to move us beyond that pernicious either or and to show the ways that a whole range of thinkers um, in the 20th century, especially, are having much more nuanced discussions uh, that don't fall into these camps of objectivism or relativism. I, you mentioned World War II, and that is sending me in all kinds of interesting places because I did not go into Bernstein's work uh, looking for you know political philosophy, for example. Um, I was looking at science. And I was trying to understand what was wrong, why we were excluding certain ideas that ideas that may seem radical in in terms of what physical reality could be, what what uh, human experiences could be termed valid or helpful versus what we must pathologize. These sorts of issues is what brought me to Bernstein, and and he talks a lot about really interesting guys like Kuhn, Thomas Kuhn, but. You mentioned World War II and rule following, and um, I'm reminded of a book I read on. Um, it's called a human or a history, a moral history of the 20th century. Um, that might have been the subtitle, and in it, it discusses the willingness of citizens to carry out atrocity uh, in World War II, uh, and it compared Germany and Italy. And it discussed the willingness of citizens to obey and to conform to strict rule following was different uh, in Germany. 
and in Italy. And so the uh, the efficacy of rules, rule following for things like genocide uh, and the Holocaust, they were not as, uh, the rules weren't carried out as thoroughly in Italy as they were by the Germans. And this was a cultural, uh, something learned culturally over time. It was, we know, like the, the bureaucracy and, and all of its effectiveness. And it's it does bring a lot of beauty and an order to society that sits right at home in Germany. And so this had decades to sort of cook and bleed out into the society, the importance of structure and rule following where as in Italy, you know, you, you have certain consequences. Maybe the trains don't run on time, right? There are certain uglier consequences, but then maybe there's more people willing to stick it to the government that says, yeah, you need to, you need to round up all your Jewish neighbors. You know, there's some, there's a, a, a disobedient, an acceptable disobedience that can be advantageous depending on the situation. In situation A, we have very functional water treatment plants, uh, trains running on time, traffic, the police are respected more, maybe maybe there's less corruption in situation B, maybe you have more of those things. But in a crisis, we have something very important, the, the need to disobey or the willingness to disobey rules because we don't associate those rules with some almost with God, you know, the disobedience with rules, with the disobedience of God or the, you know, the great father or some, sorry, that was a long rant. I don't know if, if you find that related to Bernstein. Well, I mean, I think the thing to say relative to Bernstein, so he, um, overlapped briefly with Hannah Arendt at the new school and was very, um, had a very intense uh, intellectual relationship with Hannah Arendt. He's written several books on Hannah Arendt, including a relatively recent one called Why Read Hannah Arendt Now? Um, but I think the kinds of things that you're talking about relate to her text on the origins of totalitarianism. And, you know, for Bernstein, I think um, he is a he is a slightly different generation than Arendt. Uh, and so part of what he and his work is diagnosing is this kind of deification of science and scientism that is happening in the 1950s and 1960s, which is also part of what gets played out as the analytic continental divide in philosophy. Mm. Um, and, you know, so I think people like... Uh, Kuhn are so important to Bernstein because of the way that there's an effort to diagnose something else than scientific method as this story of like continual progress. Um, and so he's always interested in these more hermeneutic kind of dialogue based um thinkers and traditions and trying to show us that things are always open to revision. So, you know, what we take to be the truth in this circumstance, under these conditions, for these reasons, um, you know, there's always the possibility of fallibility. There's always the possibility of revision. What he wants to emphasize also is that doesn't lead us to this kind of like slack relativism where we can never talk about truth. We can never um, 
have recourse to facts. That's not at all what he wants either. But he, what he wants is this middle position where we're able to, uh, we're able to remain in dialogue, remain in conversation about difficult truths, difficult historical events, difficult experiences, and learn what additional facts there might be, learn how things might turn out or might progress or might not progress, um, and not be stuck in this really radical kind of sensibility that uh, that there is this single point of foundational truth or a single kind of methodology. Um, so, you know, I think from, you know, I, there's no way I can kind of neatly compare these two things, but I think from Hannah Arendt's perspective, part of the diagnosis of the origin of totalitarianism is the diagnosis of a very methodical, strict, single-track definition of rationality and reason. Yes. And so Bernstein is very concerned with that too, and very concerned with all the debates around rationality in his own time. Um, but it's more in the guise of a, a kind of budding scientism that's overtaking the humanities, that's overtaking everything else, and this idea that there is just a single methodology. Um, and if you don't align with that methodology, then whatever you're doing is not serious or not true or not relevant or whatever else. There's like there's this this contradiction in us. On the one hand, there's the the ability of the human being to perceive truth or to perceive, you know, that word now starts to get a little fuzzy for us, but insight, I guess. Insight is not the result of rule following. That might be a good way to put it. That And so in the process of science, for example, that the insight about the nature of reality or whatever it is comes before the formalization and before the rigorous rule-bound treatment in the scientific method. So we have this uncanny ability to see things prior to rules. Uh, somewhere along the journey, we confused that with, well, the rules are the thing that's sacred and that the, the, the method is can be a foundation. We went from foundation to foundation without success, looking for the one, the one true way that could give us absolute truth all the time. And that that search has ended, more or less. I mean, it, it, you would know better than I do, but it seems like I don't think anybody in the 21st century is is hopeful for a new philosophical foundation, or are they? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, we're in a much more pluralistic moment now, philosophically, than we have been um, in the in the recent past. Uh, but of course, that kind, you know, pluralism also brings with it a lot of confusion and discord and potential fuzziness and, you know, a whole whole range of things. So, you know, I think it's tricky to, um, well, let me give you one example. So, you know, for instance, there is so much uh, institutional interest over the last uh, well, 
I mean, since I've been teaching, I've been teaching for almost 16 years. So for that time, that time span, I can, I can say this for sure about so much interest in interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary studies, which is great. And you want conversation across disciplines and you want collaboration and you want a lot of, um, you know, exciting, creative work that's not just totally siloed in its own domain. However, this is also dovetailing with a lot of consolidation and eradication of programs, which are, you know, for whatever reason, deemed not to be interesting or compelling or successful enough to stand on their own. So that's just one example, I think, of a way in which the kind of quest for um, for pluralism and for a kind of like creative exchange can also become a rationalization for, uh, you know, cutting programs, for gutting things. And that's really dangerous. And of course, the things that tend to succumb to those pressures tend to be in the humanities, tend to be in the arts. Um, and we've seen that across higher education over many, many years. So why am I talking about this? I've sort of lost the thread. Um, well, um, pr pragmatism, It maybe you could clarify a point that might help us. Um, pragmatism seems to encourage us to be weary of ourselves. And, and so like, while we, we may adopt a pluralistic frame, um, that frame too will have limits and will have ramifications. So like wherever we choose to cast our gaze, um, it seems like that we are, we are forever in a lens. We are forever in a, we're forever we are always limited i guess would be a better way to say it does that uh, does that resonate with you at all in that problem of sort of the attempt to integrate pluralism and, and interdisciplinary studies and yeah i mean i guess i was thinking um you know just thinking about um about dick bernstein's work and the kinds of things that he was thinking about in his lifetime mm. um it's sort of meaningless to invoke pluralism or the interdisciplinary or whatever else if you're not at the same time willing to be engaged in committed relationships and experiences with actual other people and institutions and whatever else so it's a very easy thing to talk about and to kind of pay lip service to as being so great, but it's really hard work to actually, um, you know, have conversations, to actually collaborate, to actually be in meaningful dialogue. And so at the institutional level, I think what we end up getting is a lot of kind of pressure toward something that looks really good on paper, but not a lot of institutional support for the really difficult kind of work and time and engagement that would make would make that those ideas um, live, that would make them actual, 
you know, part of, really part of education and not just part of a description of education. When you revoke your commitment to a foundation, uh, or to a philosophical foundation, or you know, some set of rules which encapsulate truth, and you and you enter into the pragmatic frame, which is like what what works is it's true enough, or these rules are true enough, but we don't, you know, we're in a conversation, right? We accept that reality, our engagement with reality is a conversation. That is really hard. Was Bernstein aware that the pragmatic frame is just, it's kind of an, it, I think I can see how people would see it as a nuisance because it, it continually requires you to work and it it's a little nicer and maybe a little, maybe it depends on the temperament. Maybe a very conscientious person likes to engage with those, the philo- philosophies that claim certainty. You know, maybe it's a bit easier for, for action, daily life, even if it's not helpful at a philosophical level. What do you think he? I mean, he certainly knew how hard it was and was a kind of exemplar of engage of that kind of engagement across his life. You know, fearless in his debates, joyful in his debates. Um, You know, it requires being a certain kind of interlocutor, one who is taking things very seriously, but also retains a sense of humor, um, who, you know, is able to really grapple with very hard problems that maybe don't have solutions and to understand that there's going to have to be compromises on all sides. Um, you know, I think that he was very skeptical of ideas about consensus, and this is part of his uh, part of his kind of divergence from Habermas and the degree of faith in uh, rational decision making. So, you know, there's a kind of tempered sensibility to Bernstein and his uh, his form of pragmatism that accepts that things may not work out, that we may not arrive at agreement or consensus. And nonetheless, we have to keep working at it. We have to keep talking. We have to keep being engaged in public debates and building publics that are more inclusive and that do better. And that is just very, very hard and often, um, you know, not celebrated kinds of work. Um, This, you know, it also makes me think back to William James, who had this very um, famous distinction between uh, the dreamer and the person of action. James would, of course, say the man of action, but we'll just say the person of action. So, He was very critical of the dreamer in a lot of his texts and kind of associated the dreamer with a form of rationalism. And the person of action was somebody who musters the energy to meet the demands of the day, who doesn't get caught up in this kind of endless uh, self-reflection and thinking about what should I do, what should I do? what should happen, but knows how to actually respond to the crisis of the moment. 
And so in James's philosophy, there's certainly a kind of preference for the person of action. And it has, you know, a problematic, actually, kind of American, like, uh, sort of masculine American can-do attitude built into that kind of pragmatic uh, approach that we see in James. But it's also complicated in James. And I think, you know, that stress on action is also tempered with James's own realization that as human beings, we're kind of perpetually stretched between these two poles of existence. And we can't live at the pitch of action all the time. We can't live at the pitch of dreaming all the time. But life is a kind of, you know, a, a combination of these different tendencies. And the real work is figuring out what's appropriate in this situation, in this moment, in this context. And that's really difficult. So to know when and how and under what circumstances to act in what way, in what way and so on. Um, so I think, you know, I think Dick Bernstein's work really takes some of those insights into our more contemporary moment. Um, but it's, that's certainly a pragma, a theme that you find in the early pragmatists as well. I think a, um, a skepticism about the world of symbols that we live in, whether that be the, the, through the embodied through the dreamer, afraid to act because uh, one is caught in the various possibilities of what might be true, and that could induces a sort of paralysis. Um, I think you see a counter to that not only in the sort of uh, the what you you characterize as the the masculine American can do, which I think there are like every lens has limitations, but also has some beauty. I think uh, there is also uh, another side which criticizes that that sort of living in the world of symbols. I'm reminded of Aldous Huxley, and he wrote a a forward to um, uh, J. Krishnamurti's book, uh, First and Last Freedom. And he says something like, man uh, is amphibious and lives in these two worlds. And we have to be deeply conscious of the effect of the one world on the other, and that we often are not, we're not aware that we are in this world of symbols and that we conflate symbols with the real often. And probably both parties are in danger of that conflation, the, the man of action and the dreamer. Uh, the man of action is acting out the rules that he assumes to be real. He has to do that. We have to act uh, on assumptions or you end up not acting. But you may not realize that these rules are this sort of limited expression of the real. And then the dreamer is just caught just forever in this sort of transcendent realm of that is the only reality. And you you lose the embodied piece, the animal piece, uh, that we are animals and we are like... You know, we're we're living organisms put on this earth. Uh, we are evolved for uh, for action, for for doing, and that is we get unhealthy when we don't do, uh, and when we isolate and and all of those things. I've, that's something I've talked about before. Yeah, I mean, I think it also kind of guts the responsibility piece of being human. <laughs> 
in a world with other humans and other creatures and responsibility to our environments. I mean, for James, the paradigmatic dreamer he invokes is Rousseau. He's so critical of Rousseau, like such beautiful theory of education and, um, you know, the discourse on inequality. And yet you have this person who um, took no responsibility for his own children. So that disconnect between the life of the mind and the life that you're living in the context of the people that you're living together with or the people and creatures, other creatures you're living together with. Um, So, you know, that kind of sensibility in James that um, that's a kind of cautionary tale, like we we have to be cautious about getting caught up in our own um, thinking about what the world is or how it should be to such a degree that we stop actually taking note or measure of how it is in the here and now, how it is for the person sitting next to me, how it is in my life together with other, uh, with other beings. So that's why I say, you know, I think that there is this component of response and responsibility, which is a real ethical component of pragmatism. You certainly find it in James. You certainly find it in Dewey and the stress on the democracy and and the public and education. Um, So, you know, I just think those are really, those are really important components and it as soon as you bring those components in, it kind of changes the stakes of what it means to just be like, I don't know, when you use the word dreamer, there's nothing like that's sort of lovely. And, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of hope for moments of um, or episodes in life when one can really just be a dreamer. That's really important, too. But it's the kind of being stranded in or being held captive to the um the kind of illusion of of how that is a life or what kind of life that is that becomes very dangerous. Yeah, and it's something also, it goes back to what we started the conversation with, which is the, the attempt to do something creative. And you are so utterly dependent on your inner life for creativity that you live there. You really do. And the attempt to bridge that with the outer world of action can be such a struggle because mm-hmm. there's there is this distance of not only the distance of producing the thing you want to produce which is hard enough but then then you have to rally up some other people who think it's worthwhile what you what you've done and and it's true that if you don't tend to that inner world and you don't live there you will not be an artist like if you don't spend an ample time there rip, respecting that space, cultivating that space, being at- attentive to that inner space. It's going to be very hard to to um to produce something, right? Because you're not in touch with that domain. And yet you can get lost there and you can die there. And that happens to artists. I mean that that's like the the archetype of the artist, right? This sort of tragic story of that they create beauty but live in agony. Yeah. Yes. And you know, art historically, I think that that particular story has 
described and served certain populations better than others. Um, that tends to be a very kind of male-centered story of um, of art history and art making. Um, and there's been a real romanticization of that figure of the artist as tortured and incapable of social contact or incapable of social responsibility uh, that I think is really problematic because of course there's always been people also making making work and uh, leading creative lives that aren't uh, aren't fitting that paradigm. So, you know, I think we we have a tendency to kind of glorify the picture of the artist as socially removed, as somehow, we, you know, totally separate. Are we glorifying or are we describing? Because it seems like, I know you're saying that, yes, we're glorifying, but it seems like also what we're doing when we tell that story, that story is reflective of thousands and thousands of lives, right? People that do in fact live that life of, of like you yourself, you mentioned, um, you know, the, the place that you found yourself in where you're so able to contribute into this beautiful way to society. You, you described it as a kind of a miracle, which would imply that those who don't receive the miracle are in agony and are in a place where they can't receive the, the fruits of their, of their work. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to belittle uh, or, you know, even argue with anything that you've just said. I, um, But I think, you know, so all like you go back all the way to Plato and like the description of the artist and Plato as mad, which is, you know, mad and inspired, whatever. But there's a kind of infatuation with this outsider figure. And so I think that there's also been a tendency to select for um, the outsider persona in the art world as being emblematic of genius or emblematic of talent or emblematic of success. And in some cases, that's just true. I mean, in some cases, I think you're right that this is just a kind of description that is um, reacting to different kinds of figures who have produced amazing groundbreaking work. But I also think that it has fueled a sense that in order to be an artist or in order to make great work, you're supposed to fit this pattern of being inarticulate, socially reclusive, on the border of madness all the time, um, totally and utterly so consumed with your work that you're incapable of doing anything else. Sure. Um, often this is tied also to like, you know, forms of addiction or, you know, other, other things that are kind of unhinging you um, mm -hmm. at the same time that they're kind of knit into your creativity. And I think that has been really unhelpful and um has also you know led us to this kind of art historical story where there's been a lot of kind of genius uh category 
that's been created that has left out a lot of other kinds of figures and makers and thinkers. Yeah. Um, so that's all I'm saying. I think, okay. you know, these are, these are problematic paradigms that right. often get kind of sticky. And then if you have people aspiring to that kind of paradigm, that's also, you know, leads to some really troubling outcomes. That's fair. I mean, I, I, I can understand completely how you, caricature something uh you know it can be dangerous i'm not i don't know if i want to chase the masculine piece down i'm not completely agreeing with you but, but pro probably because i don't understand you um but i did want to add one point um um about the nature of creativity which i think you probably agree with a little bit um that i, I think part of the story of the the tortured unstable creative person may have to do with you know the, the neurophysiology of creativity and that people who experience um insight you know insight is off is very mysterious like we have no idea what what it is um it seems to be related to an opening of some sort but opening um and being a very open person can make things very hard uh for you in other ways, like everything has a price. And um, so for example, there's a, I think a, the big five is what it's called in, in the a science of personality and psychology, um, conscientiousness and openness and um, uh, neurosis or neuroticism, high negative uh, uh, tendency toward negative thought, um, these sorts of things like, uh, the people do reside on this spectrum. Um, and it's often, I think it's a very blessed uh, group that can be functional, highly functional and creative. Uh, I think that's what we should strive for, for sure. I think that's very healthy. But I think, um, I think part of what makes certain people People are creative and unstable because of what is going on in their nervous system. That the thing that gives them the beauty of their insights, whether that's a mathematician like like uh, uh, John Nash or Kurt Girdle or a poet or you know whoever it happens to be, this 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 dual existence of is is in some kind of disorder. So they're given a gift with one hand, but nature takes something away with the other. Uh, when we look at these examples, at least, I'm not arguing at all with what you're saying about the when we deify that and try to strive for that as an example of how to be in life. I think those those individuals didn't lead very happy lives. I mean, Kurt Girdle died of uh, he thought he was being poisoned to death, you know, and and, and he, so he just didn't eat. Um, and there's, there's so many musicians that are, are the, anyway, I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is about, I think. I think there are some sort of structure, undiscovered structural neurological issue that we're going to uh, learn more about that allows certain creative people a different lens that allows them to do this thing we're talking about in pragmatism, the thing of moving between lenses or being above, you know, being above the fray somehow and having those insights. It allows them to do that. But in allowing them to do that, it's a price. And that price is often in the the practical social sphere. They suck at relationships. They are horrible with their finances. They're, you know, because of the, your, your mind, um, everything costs energy, right? Everything costs energy. 
And so in your mind only has so much energy. And if it's going into one place, you, you might lose it. Although I, I do think what you're saying as a something to strive for is a hundred percent true and, and should be, should be a warning sort of like a, or if, as if you were, if you're educating artists as you're doing, you know, that should be the, the exemplar to strive for, you know, functional, healthy relationships, able to have act, be in, in action, all that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I want to specify what I, I mean, we don't need to get into this too much, but um, when I said before that this kind of perpetuates a very male model of the artist that we've inherited for centuries. Um, so, you know, part of that is that when uh, we have individuals who are, you know, exceptional, whatever, things, exceptional X, and um, and are leading lives in the way that you've just described, where the kind of totality of their energies is in that direction, and there's a kind of breakdown in all these other directions. Um, and that is, you know, that's always a risk, and that's a very real price that people pay for all kinds of devotions and talents that that they may have. There's also often a whole range of people who are filling in those deficiencies in the margins of successful individuals' lives. Mm -hmm. um, and for the most part, those caregiving roles have been occupied by marginalized people. So, you know, that's why there's infrastructure, right? Insofar as somebody is uh, is living, um, and especially insofar as they're having some degree of professional success in the way that they're living, there's certainly other people involved in helping to buoy that existence. And that's not something that we talk very much about um, when we fixate on like the individual creative genius. So I think that's like a kind of blind spot in a form of historical narration and storytelling. Um, but the flip side of that is that also if we see these two things as necessarily connected, that is like talent connected to a certain kind of um, like social deficiency or practical deficiencies in a range of areas, um, then I think we do end up perpetuating a model that that kind of encourages a um, abdication of responsibility. I can I can understand I can sympathize with that that it, in in worshiping, but that that I mean that's the same problem with you know you have this problem with religion as well. You know we we tend to worship the image of the thing, not understanding the thing itself we worship the image and so the image of the artist i can understand the image of the artist can produce a lot of problems uh artists themselves um a, a genius uh whether that's a man or a woman or whoever it happens to be um is a very complicated complex creature and we have to be 
weary of all of our stories that we're telling, even if those stories are inclusive of marginalized uh, narratives. That's still a story, right? We have to just, in my view, it's helpful to always remember we're telling a story and, and, and that helps us to kind of bring the lenses together and pick apart which one's offering what, which one might be astray here, which one offers something very strong that's missing. Um, but I think that's, uh, I think that's a good point you make. Uh, if, if, if it's okay, I would like to kind of switch uh, tracks a little bit towards uh your work on uh, James and Levinas, and you've written some on James and Levinas and Bergson. Um, would that interest you at all? Sure. Um, I'm just glancing at the yeah. Let's let's do a couple of questions yeah. about that. It's not um. So you know we've used that word marginalized. Um, marginalized thinkers. Uh, you know we could definitely throw Bergson in there, I do believe, in, in terms of academia. Um, he's pretty controversial. Einstein hated his guts. Um, he's very, <laughs> very influential, though, in a kind of undercover way. I I like Bergson a lot. Um, I wonder if you could maybe tell us just a little bit about him and James and Levinas, these three people who you've written about together. I think they're all, they're uh, they're interesting figures. Yeah, I mean, I think so. Um, I was writing my dissertation on Levinas and, you know, very sort of centered in Levinas's work. Um, and what I can say is that I had no intention of writing about either James or Bergson um, when I started that work. And it was actually even though I was working with Bernstein as my advisor, I had not taken any pragmatism courses with him while I was at the new school. And so I'd never studied James with Bernstein. But I was finding myself immersed in Levinas. And I don't, I don't know if you've read any of his texts, but they're very difficult to read. The writing is very dense. It's slow going. And, we seemed a little bit like Sartre, a little bit, like just interesting, but very difficult to get hold of. Yeah, I would say Sartre is a lot, uh, for me anyway, a lot easier to read than Levinas. But, you know, they're both French thinkers of a similar time period. And um, Yeah, and I think a part, you know, a big part of Levinas's project is to try to find some new way of writing philosophy. So some new relationship to language. And as a reader, you're kind of subjected to that experiment in ways that can be really hard and feel, you know, feel unsettling because the language itself is not doing what you would expect it to be doing. So anyway, as an antidote to that, I was like, I just need to read somebody who can write well or who writes in my own language and who's, you know, I need to read something else. And I happened to reach for a James compilation and started sort of reading James again as antidote to Levinas. 
So that's how my interest in the two of them started. But then I made this uh, sort of discovery along the way, which is that uh, Levinas, who was, uh, so he is originally Lithuanian, but he became a French uh, citizen and enlisted in the French uh, the French army during World War II and was taken captive as a prisoner of war, but he was granted a kind of special status as a French officer. Um, so this is why he was not deported to a concentration camp, even though he was Jewish. Um, anyway, during his time in captivity, he started taking notes for this book that he published shortly after uh, his captivity. It came out in 1947. And in that text, he invokes an example from William James, which I was so surprised about because it's a text that he wrote kind of under these conditions of confinement where he did not have access to any of his books. And um, so, you know, you kind of think about, well, you know, if you were left without any of your resources and you're trying to write a book, like what are the things that you've carried with you in your mind? And James was one, among those things for Levinas. So then I went back to the James example, uh, which came from the principles of psychology and started to think about the two of them together and why that example was so important for Levinas and what he was kind of learning from James. And that's where Bergson kind of enters as a bridge between them because um, I don't actually think that Levinas read a whole lot of William James or had, you know, real significant scholarly engagement with William James, but he did with Bergson. And uh, Bergson is one of the main influences for Levinas's uh, thinking. And uh, Bergson and James had a very um, close intellectual relationship in their own lifetime, wrote letters to each other, uh, wrote introductions to translated versions of each other's texts. And James really believed that uh, the kind of confluence between his own thinking and Bergson's thinking was reflective of some like greater uh, sort of spirit zeitgeist of the times. Um, and he loved the fact that this person on another continent was writing these books and essays that resonated so much with his work in America. And so, you know, this sort of like transnational exchange was seen as uh, sort of evidence that they were both on the right path and that they were breaking new ground together. Mm -hmm. What... um. I'm I'm reading here in my notes about uh, the primacy of perception and experience, and I'm trying to relate that. You write a little bit about how trauma, or Levinas writes about how trauma has a way of sticking with people. Um, Levinas talks about how pain has a density uh, that shapes you for the rest of your life. Um, and James also talks a little bit about pain and about um, that life isn't just like a natural flow, that it's this, it's, uh, it's something that you encounter as these sort of impenetrable points of barbed wire that you have to crawl through. And, um, I wonder if I'm, if I'm being intelligible at all. 
Yeah, I mean, I think um, so. Pr American pragmatism has sometimes been criticized for not having enough of a sense of the tragic, mm. um, and that is definitely not something that Levinas has ever been criticized for. In fact, there's a, you know, there's a whole kind of uh, critique of Levinas for. Um, being over-traumatized or having too much of a sense of the tragic. Um, so, you know, I think in my own work, um, both of those critiques are uh, a little bit too quick and inaccurate. Uh, James wrote openly about his own struggles with depression and a lifetime of uh, physical ailments that really impacted his thinking and his way of life. Um, so I feel like James is one of those thinkers who's very attuned to the kind of precariousness of um, of embodied existence and the psychological the psychological kind of um, problems that people have to deal with all the time and his sort of family history is also tied up in that there's a lot of tragedy there's a lot of mental health problems um so i find those aspects of james really interesting um and in levinas um it's maybe i don't know uh it's easier to pinpoint the trauma that his work is reacting to because it's the trauma of the Holocaust. And um, so his major works are all emanating after uh, the Second World War and taking into account not only his own imprisonment as a prisoner of war in a labor camp during the war, but the extermination of most of his extended family, the experience of his wife and daughter having to be hidden in France uh, in a convent in order to survive through that time. And the whole kind of historical question on the heels of all of those events about what it means to think or to write or to make anything in the wake of what has just happened. So can you just go about writing in the same way you always have or can you just you know is it okay to make an image these were all very live questions in that historical period and you see Levinas grappling with that by trying to um you know trying to write a text that takes seriously the um the kind of weight of that recent history and uh, trying to craft some some way of writing that leaves space for this kind of unspeakable tragedy. So you use that word unspeakable and you use that a little bit too uh, in the article. And I'm sorry that I cannot remember which article it was. Um, but something about the uns things unsayable seem, seem to be uh, an important part of Levinas's philosophy. And James, a little bit, too, it seemed to be trying to 
go that way with the, the varieties of religious experience. Um, was the unsayable just related related to tragedy for him, or was he also um, did he also relate to the transcendent or or ideas like that? Well, so transcendence is super important for Levinas as a mm-hmm. as a concept. Um, it's something that he writes about a lot. Um, but I think, you know, in, so he has kind of two major texts, totality and infinity is the first one. And then the second one is called, um, otherwise than being or beyond essence. And in the second text, he really starts to grapple more openly with the question of the unsayable. Um, and he sets up a kind of a sort of distinction in that text between two aspects of language, which he describes as the saying and the said. And, um, you know, this always puts us in a bind because to try to talk about, uh, to try to talk about these things is to kind of confront the limits of language. Mm -hmm. But for Levinas, it's a way of trying to describe, um, on the one hand, the kind of expressive, embodied, emotive component of language that is the saying. And on the other hand, the written, articulate, comprehensible, legible aspect of language, which he describes as the said. And we're kind of caught as linguistic beings in the muck of these two things. Um, Even though Levinas thinks that we're kind of destined toward the said, like at the end of the day, uh, language closes, language becomes nominal, language becomes legible, uh, it becomes written. So he's really interested in the kind of ricochet between these aspects of language and those aspects of language that resist closure or resist nominalization, resist description. Um, And that would be this whole realm of like what can't be said or what, um, you know, even in trying to be articulated remains opaque or remains uh, confused. I don't know, pick your word there. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's also this realm of expression. So I think part of the reason this is really important for Levinas is because his whole kind of ethical, I don't even want to call it a theory because it's really not a theory, but his ethics hinges on the idea that um, ethics is not, cannot be contained by these prescriptive legible rules. So, of course, we might have prescriptive legible rules, and maybe they're useful, and maybe they work, or maybe they don't work. But for Levinas, the the kind of emblematic ethical situation is the situation in which you are encountering something you haven't encountered before. You don't have a rule. You don't know what's being asked. So it's sort of in the realm of what he's calling the saying. And nonetheless, you have to react. Nonetheless, you have to uh, be responsible. Mm -hmm. 
So that I think is the the kind of ethical upshot of this distinction between the saying and the said that he makes with the argument that ethics can never be fully codified into the said. I really like that. Uh, and that jives well with what we talked about earlier, that the, the juxta, juxtaposition between rules and this kind of the infinite complexity of life. Uh, yeah. And so that with ethics and values that, that is, um, that really poses a problem with religion as well, because on the one hand, it is valuable to state values, right? It's important for us to state our values, whatever they happen to be or whoever you happen to be. Um, and that can affect you uh, deeply uh, in a positive way. But at the same time, this is the difficulty of pragmatism again, that that the values are never going to be perfect maps of the real. And no matter what your your code is, that there's going to be a gap between the word and the thing. And uh and that all that all that seems to go very nicely with Bernstein also. Yeah, I mean, I think we're, you know, we're talking about a matrix of thinkers and traditions that um that have taken seriously the um the friction between the ideal and the real or you know the incommensurability between thought and action i mean you could put this in all different love, kinds of love ways that. yeah i love that way of putting it incommensurability between certain things they're just they never quite they don't reduce to each other yeah and i think you know levinas is certainly not alone in this but um on the heels of the Second World War, I think there's a kind of effort by a lot of different thinkers to grapple with the way in which um, norms and laws and rules have have a kind of positive guiding effect, but also can lead toward this, um, you know, a kind of um, false sense of security, a false sense that um, we're being held together or we're taking care of each other or things are running smoothly because there are rules in place or because there are laws in place or because of whatever else. And that's that kind of way in which the, you know, like the internalization of a code can certainly be helpful and important and guiding in a person's life. But if the internalization of the code overrides the ability to react in the moment to a discrete, a discrete situation, then, you know, you kind of have the replacement of response and responsibility with this almost automaton kind of like behaviorism. Right. Um, and so how do you keep alive the responsiveness to life? It's almost and like I, there's no way other than pain. Uh, sorry, that well. just, <laughs> I was just thinking like, obviously deeply personally, I was just thinking about what are, what are the things that shake us loose from the, the security of, of ritualistic behavior 
And it's when the, the, the ritual doesn't get us what we want and it's pain. And, and I, that's a very pessimistic view. Obviously we could go the other way to love and light and hope we can be present for, uh, for our limitations as well, I guess. Yeah. I mean, one of the major, uh, criticisms of loving us, um, is that it's just, it's like, if you view ethics in this way, it's just too exhausting. It's totally, utterly overwhelming and depleting to think that you have to be individually responsive to every life in a new way all the time, because there's always new demands being placed on you. There's no kind of automatic anything ever. Um, and so is that even livable? You know, it's like uh, living at this kind of intensity of responsiveness that leaves basically no room for anything else. Um, and you see in Loving Us all of this language about vigilance and responsibility um, and insomnia. I mean, there's a lot of different language that uh, really lends itself to that worry that this is just not even doable. Um, I think my own feeling about that is that there is an aspect of kind of interminability and um you know, fatigue and pain and trauma, certainly in everything that Levinas is writing about. However, there's also this kind of very like low level, mundane, ordinary um, set of set of behaviors and responses that he is actually interested in that are not particularly traumatic. So it's he returns often to this example of holding the door for another person. Uh, which is, you know, maybe you forget or it's just not something that you're in the habit of doing or whatever else. But for Levinas, it's the indication of this uh, a kind of orientation in the world that lets the other person go before you in a, you know, a kind of non-dramatic way. It's not like you're giving up a whole lot by doing that or that it's really painful or traumatic to hold the door. Um, but that's the kind of baseline of ethical responsivity that he is concerned with and when we lose that then it's sort of easy to imagine how we lose sight of other people in much more traumatic and uh you know consequential sorts of ways you know i can understand how he would become consumed with that uh what leads us to to lose it to that to lose our grip to that extent that we are willing to treat each other with, uh, with, um, that level of callousness that he experienced. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, it's, he's not the only, he's certainly not alone in his concern about this. And part of the question is, you know, is there any kind of like daily, um, inoculation against becoming humans who repeat these atrocities of the past because certainly if there are like we want to be practicing them all the time right um but of course we have no guarantee and that's the that's like the human search right for how can we inoculate ourselves from this these waves of stupidity, this cyclical stupidity that we seem to get gripped by, 
where we fall into traps of of where we're automatons sort of just not understanding the ethical rules we abide by and so we didn't earn them ourselves they were passed down and then something bad nasty comes along and and we don't have the we don't have responsibility or uh the value of others really baked into us in a in a in a way that's uh that's helpful well um dr craig i've uh i've stolen you for a very very long time um <laughs> a lot longer than i thought i was going to um i just want to say uh thank you very much for uh for coming on and talking with me about these things like i've we talked about a lot of things i wasn't expecting to and i, I really really enjoyed it uh, so thank you very much thank you yeah our conversation went all kinds of ways I think that's, <laughs> that's the mark of a good conversation though yes it is silk once rushed this frost has rusted dry Your flocks are right past your fortress. We all are born to die.